Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company and want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. The title sponsor for this season of Origins is Carta. This season is also supported by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Carta simplifies how startups and investors manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. They also offer fund administration, where you can see real-time data in the Carta platform and work with their team of experienced fund accountants. We've been happy customers with Carta for a few years now, and we're thrilled to have them as our title sponsor. Go to carta.com notation to get 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SBB services, visit sbb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation, They've helped us form both Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Ash Koppelman is a partner and co-founder at First Round Capital. He's been an active entrepreneur and investor in the internet industry since its commercialization. He co-founded his first company, Infonautics, while still an undergrad at Penn, and later co-founded Half.com, which became one of the largest sellers of used books, movies, and music in the world, and eventually acquired by eBay in July of 2000. Josh co-founded First Round Capital in 2004 to reinvent seed stage investing, and that's exactly what he's done over the last 15 years. Josh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate it. I think I just recently discovered that you were a listener. That made me feel great. And, um, and so now I'm really excited to have you as a guest. I think a good place to start would just be tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, where you grew up, and what, what led you to entrepreneurship. Sure. So uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. I, I grew up in uh, a suburb of New York on Long Island had a pretty privileged background. My father was a professor at City University of New York. My mother was a residential real, real estate agent. And my, my maternal grandfather, my mom's dad, was an entrepreneur. He, he put himself through college on the GI Bill, You know, served in World War II, um, came back, got an engineering degree, and started some semiconductor companies. Hmm. And sort of he was a mentor and role model for me in so many ways. He, you know, all through high school, I interned carrying his bag. Hmm. But even before that, like, I, I just always was entrepreneurial, whether it was, you know, I got one of the first, those clunky VHS camcorders. And I, I instantly was like, set up a videotaping business, where I'd videotape birthday parties, weddings, bar mitzvahs, 
when I was eight, I built my own little Lucy's peanut stand for to sell, you know, juice at the juice and soda at the tennis courts that at the park near my house. So I, I just was always trying to find opportunities to to create value. What brought you to Pennsylvania College? Yeah, so I went to I, I went to uh, Penn to Wharton undergrad, and uh, was an entrepreneurial management major, and never left. Hmm. So even even going into college, you were you were sure that you wanted to start that? I was pretty sure. And it was, look, it was a different time, right? I started college in 1989. The web browser wasn't invented. I left college in 1993, right after NCSA, Mosaic, and Netscape were out. So it was, if I, I couldn't have been more lucky in so many ways, both in terms of sort of who my parents were and the privilege that came with that, as well as sort of the time that I got into college, right? Sort of I was one of the first undergrads to have an email address. Hmm. And, and sort of that just positioned me really in a, in a really, I think, fortunate spot. There's all this talk now about how, you know, college or even grad school is probably not the best place to prepare someone for entrepreneurship. Did you feel like even in, did you feel like you learned things at Penn or in college that prepared you in a better way? Yes, I'd say that entrepreneurship curriculum in 1990 is very different than the entrepreneurship curriculum in 2020. But I was fortunate in that I I co-founded my first company in Phonautics while I was uh, after my sophomore year. And so what ended up happening is during my junior and senior years, I had the benefit of, of sort of learning stuff in the classroom and immediately applying it in a startup. And in fact, I, I took numerous independent study classes where I was fortunate enough to have professors who, where I would get class credit. Instead of doing a hypothetical marketing research project in the marketing department, I was able to do a, you know, a conjoint analysis-based you know, research report for my startup. So I, w- I had the benefit of sort of combining both the, the resources of Wharton with the hands-on approach I was mm-hmm. taking in starting my company. That's great. Did you start it with other folks? Could you tell us a little bit about Infonautics? Sure. I, I, I had a summer internship after my sophomore year. It was at a company called Telebase. You remember, keep in mind, there was no internet at this time. Yeah. So like, <laughs> you know, the way companies got information was they would sort of dial into the LexisNexis service or dial into the Dow Jones service. And, and sort of Telebase was a, a, an information broker that sort of played in that space. And while I was there, my boss was a man named Marvin Weinberger, and Marvin was the co-founder of Telebase. We had this idea for a service called Homework Helper, which is, wouldn't it be neat if these resources that are available for businesses could also be available for students? So um, we ended up leaving Infonautics together, and Marvin was the CEO, and I was sort of the number two. So we ended up leaving Telebase together and started Infonautics. and, and uh, he, he obviously, I imagine he was older. He was not at Penn. He, yeah, that's we right. Were, he was older. Okay. He had kids. Yeah. You know, and in the beginning, raising money for a startup back in 1991, especially seed stage, there, there, there wasn't the robust ecosystem that there is today. I mean, Mar- Marvin, you know, I couldn't mortgage my dorm room, but Marvin mortgaged <laughs> his house. Is that right? So he, he funded it as well in the early days. Yeah. Yeah. How did it evolve? You built it the first couple years in college and then post-college stayed, stayed with it and kept building it, correct? Yeah, I, I graduated in 93 and, and Infonautics went public in 96. So, oh, wow. um, um, But again, right time, right place. 
you know, we we originally our business model, we had deals with Prodigy, which was one of the first online sure. dial-up services, and CompuServe and America Online. And then as the web browser and internet access grew and dominated, we quickly were able to capitalize on that. Ultimately, rather than a consumer-facing service where consumers would pay a monthly subscription price, the real value for Infonautics seemed to come from selling to school libraries. So school libraries mm. had recently sort of had been collecting DVDs of CD-ROMs of information, and, and this just allowed them to get more dynamic, updated information. But, but candidly, you know, the search engines, the fact that like, okay, the fact that we had gone out and licensed a couple thousand books and a couple hundred magazines and newspapers and had them real time because none of them had websites. Right. You know, that, that model kind of was blown up by the fact that all of them created websites. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, and did you run it as a public company? Um, so I wasn't the CEO. I was never okay. the CEO, but, but, right. but I was, you know, I, I was there for many years as a public company from, you know, 1996 and I left in uh, 90, uh, 99. Could you just, I, I'm, I'm just so curious, like you were maybe 25, 26 senior executive at a public company. What was going through your head? What did that feel like? And, and what were some of the maybe lessons learned? So it was a pretty surreal experience. Um, but I'd say, look, going public in the early 90s was very different than today, right? Going public in the early 90s was like a B or a C round today, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we our company raised $40 million in the IPO, right? you know, and had less than 5 million of trailing 12 months revenue. Right. So this is all before Sarbanes-Oxley and the market had changed. So I would argue that it's an experience that isn't matched today. You know, we went public and the company struggled. I learned a lot from those struggles. I remember you used to get, our, our, the company name was Infonautics, and you used to get your stock quotes from the newspaper. And my grandmother would always look at the Wall Street Journal and the Infonautics <laughs> stock price would be down. And right above us was InfoSeek which was crushing it. That was one of the first search engines. So my grandmother goes, I don't know what you're doing wrong, but those InfoSeek guys seem to have it. <laughs> what, were the, what were the kind of the key one or two lessons you think you learned that, that you brought with you to half um, your next company? I'd say the first thing I learned was the importance of flexibility. We built our business model. We had licensed content, right? So we had gone on and licensed the Los Angeles Times and New York Newsday and all of yeah. them, you know, encyclopedias and all of this stuff for, for students. But we licensed it with the presumption of a very specific business model, like that we would sell it at this price. or And that just didn't give us the flexibility that we needed as the mm. world evolved. So I think I think that what we learned is you really need to sort of build flexibility and a lack of dependencies and gatekeepers and a lack of needing to get permission into all of you, into, into the way you approach things. How about from a management perspective? I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm a good manager. I don't think I learned a lot. Um, <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I thought by being moving to VC, I'd, I'd be like running away from my weakness, which is like, I'm not a great manager. Let I end up having to sort of build a firm and realize, oh, oh crap, I got to manage. Right. Right. So then you went and built half. I'm, I'm curious what the, just the kind of original seed of an idea there was and how that came to be. Yeah, so I was a big user of eBay, and I was an early user of Amazon. And what was amazing to me was the power of both the models, right? Amazon was building warehouses, and eBay was leveraging stuff in people's houses. But the auction model really makes sense if something is scarce or hard to find. 
right? So that's why you go to Sotheby's or Christie's. That's why you bid on something. But like, no one walks into Borders and starts bidding on the book with the person next to them. They just, they're, it's, you know, right. for commodity items, auction is the wrong format. So we kind of said, wow, like, it seems great. Yet Amazon had the right buying format for books, which was you could go on, you could see the cover, you could read the reviews for audio, you could listen to a 30-second sample. So eBay didn't have any of that. Yet they were, people were trying to sell books, music, and movies like there were used books on eBay, and Amazon didn't have marketplace. Right. So, so we said, you know, it really makes sense to allow non-auction, fixed-price, person-to-person, peer-to-peer commerce of these commodity items, books, music, movies, video games, cell phones. And, and so that was the basic idea for Half.com. Originally, we were going to actually call it, we owned the domain name Ebazon because it was the best of eBay and the best of, of <laughs> Amazon. But our lawyers told us that there's very few, you know, even though eBay and, and Amazon are ruthless competitors and they really hate each other, the one thing they both agree on is suing us. <laughs> Who did you start that company with? So uh, I was the CEO. My co-founder there was uh, Sonny Balajapali Rao, who was an early technical employee at my prior company at Phenomics. And so he was the CTO and I was the CEO. And so tell us just a little bit about that kind of experience. I know you ended up selling it to eBay. So I'm curious. Yeah, it was a crazy, it was like, again, luck, you know, starting a company in 99 in this space, we launched in January of 2000. And how much money did you need to start the company? I assume it was quite a bit more than today, no? Yeah, we had, well, we had raised 5 million to just get to launch. And right. within a, and, and in February, a month after launch, we raised close to 15 million. Okay. You know, because keep in mind at that time, like the only way to create exposure for your dot-com company, the amount of money you were spending on TV was crazy, right? Pets.com had their sock puppet, you know, right. eating up the airwaves. You know, so we, we, we launched and very quickly got attention. We did some stunts to drive awareness. And within 60 days of launch, got a call from eBay hmm. and uh, ended up selling to eBay about six months later. And was, was eBay still private or they had already gone public? eBay had gone public. Okay. And I assume they were basically acquiring like specifically your categories? They were acquiring the categories, but also just sort of the under, they, they, they hadn't really thought about fixed price commerce. So for example, hmm. right after they acquired us, you know, we help them drive by it now, which is, you know, a pretty important feature on eBay. It's the, their fixed price feature in the auction category. Yeah. And, and now that drives over 50% of their total GMV. Mm. So, so yes, you know, I, I ended up running their books, music and movies category, but the learnings both in terms of buy it now, but also in terms of building a payment mechanism. Like, so we had our own, you know, when, when you bought something on, on half.com, you, you gave us a credit card, just like you would buy it on, on, on Amazon. Because we, we launched before PayPal. And so I think we had the experience of integrated payments, which helped them mm-hmm. both with their in-house solution, BillPoint, but also ultimately pushed them to buy PayPal. We helped with uh, Buy It Now, and then we helped drive volume in, their, in, in the books, music, and movies categories. Did you ever think about not selling it? So, yes. Uh, just put yourself, though, and keep in mind that, on, you know, that we got a phone call from them in March of 2000 if you remember what happened in March of 2000, that was the top of the dot-com bubble. So while we were talking to them, the market was crashing. Mm. So while, look, the business ultimately went on to generate 
hundreds of millions of dollars of GMV annually and, and was highly profitable when I left, that wasn't guaranteed. And access to the capital markets would have been meaningfully constrained. So just given that we had gone out and raised money and, and had an opportunity to deliver, I think, a 10 or 11x to our investors within five, I think they invested in February and we sold in June, July. So, you know, in, in, in less than, you know, their, their biggest problems was, uh, was uh, short-term gains. Right. It's a good problem to have. When did you start angel investing? And how did you, what kind of drove the interest and how did you begin learning about it? Was it after half? I think it was, yeah, it was, it was while I was at half.com. So it was like, it was like around 2000, 2001 is when I started making my early investments. So the market had turned, right? So the dot-com bust had started. And I assume you went out to California. Oh, I was going out to California every other week okay. at half.com. So I, I, you know, that's a cadence that, that I'd been doing for a while. And when I look at my, my friends and the peer group in the industry, a large number of them are, are, are West Coast based. But you never moved there. No, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. So for angel investing perspective, it started off, I think, as most people do, investing in people I knew, start, you mm -hmm. know, my friends, or ideas that I was just excited by. And it was a form of learning for me, especially when, you know, working at eBay at that point in time, this was an opportunity for me to sort of stay close to founders I knew, friends I knew, and the startup scene. So whether it was Scott Weiss, who was starting Ironport, which ultimately got acquired by Cisco, or Joshua Schachter, who was starting Delicious, or Reed Hoffman, who was starting LinkedIn, they were all sort of people I knew and, and contemporaries and sort of was an ability to invest alongside people I knew in the beginning. Was it a financial, like, was it financially driven or really just a, was there, or was there a component of the financial piece first, just learning and investing in friends? Or I guess at one point, did you decide or think like this would be a good way to actually like drive financial returns beyond the learning, if ever? I wasn't making donations, right? So I was indeed investing capital, but I also recognize that it's extremely risky, right? So like, I remember I, I kept my, you know, I keep all my, my investments in Quicken. And, and for me, the way that I was able to live with the risk of writing a check is I would wire, you know, I'd write the check, 25,000, 50,000, whatever it might be to the company. I'd enter it in Quicken. And then on the investments category, I'd add, okay, LinkedIn. And I'd bring the value to zero. Uh, and I mm -hmm. carried it at zero on my quote in my head and on my Quicken and in my personal balance sheet. So of course I, I I knew I wasn't just like doing it to light money on fire, but I also needed to sort of just mentally understand the risk that I was taking. I think what ended up happening is I sort of realized a few things during that time. I also I wasn't the CEO, but I was a founding chairman of another company that got started, uh, Turntide, which very quickly got acquired by Semantic. And, and sort of what I'd seen during the career in terms of either founding or co-founding three companies or investing in, you know, in, in, in a couple dozen companies before starting first round, is I saw just so many trends that were playing out in the industry, right? My first company, it took two and a half years to raise $5 million to get the first product ship. Second company, Half.com, we spent about two to two and a half million dollars of cash to get to first product ship. Third company, Turntide, was about $500,000. Mm -hmm. So in my own operating career, in, in, in about the span of a decade, a little over a decade, there was an order of magnitude drop in terms of the cash needed to get to product market fit. And during that same time, venture funds tripled in size. 
So the average initial check went up from uh, for Series A or average Series A round went up massively. So that you know, whereas a Series A check in 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 '91 was 1.5 million dollars, in in 2005 it was around five million dollars. Sure. And so here you see companies getting 10x more capital efficient, yet venture funds are tripling and venture fund checks are tripling. That was like a 30x gap in the market. And there just didn't seem to be anyone who was playing at the, quote, institutional seed, right? Like if it, the people that were writing the two hundred and fifty to $500,000 checks to help a company get to market. So who, who were the other angels around that time? Like, it, I assume it was, you know, folks like you and Ron Conway. I assume it was a pretty small group, right? And you were probably all investing in the same <laughs> same companies. Yeah, I mean, like, Ron Conway had done it earlier. Ron Conway right, had, right. had done it during the dot-com boom. He had kind of shut down SV Angel for a while. Mm. And he was rebooting it back up in 2004 when we started first round. Around like 2005, 2006, like, the, my earliest sort of peers, I would say, were Mike Maples. Steve mm. Anderson, Jeff Clavier, Aiden Senkit. Yep. The, the, those folks were all creating. And I think they all kind of went on a very similar journey. Um, at least I know Aiden and Jeff and Mike did, which is starting investing personal capital and then raising some small institutional capital. Yeah. What led to the ultimate decision to start first round? And how did you go about that? That was in maybe 2006? First round started in 2004. 2004, okay. Yeah, I was angel investing for the, uh, from 2000 to 2004, and then first round okay. started the end of 04. I think what happened is I just saw you know the opportunity we talked about, that venture funds were moving later and larger. They were ignoring this asset class. And I believe that you can make money as a seed stage investor at that point in time. You were making your money two ways. You were making your money by the pick, right? By picking a good founder and a good idea. But you're also making your money by structural arbitrage, which is that venture firms were ignoring this stage. So you didn't have competition. You were looking at a space where others were not. Obviously, that's changed now. (laughs) If anything, the arbitrage works against you. And today you have to work even harder to make your money on the Yeah, yeah. How did you go about raising that first fund? You know, you had raised capital for companies before... Part of my learnings over the last number of years starting Notation has been that raising for funds is in many ways very different. Some ways may be similar. So I'm curious how you started that first fund. Yeah, so originally I wasn't sure I wanted to make, I, I wasn't sure that this was my forever job, right? I, I'd, been, I'd, I'd been a founder, I founded or co-founded three companies. Um, and this seemed like an interesting opportunity, but I wasn't sure this is my full-time job. So in fact, I raised money saying, you know, with my slide deck saying, this is not my full-time job. Mm-hmm. And, and so one of the things that we did is we raised uh, a series of, I, I had a co-founder at first round, his name was Howard Morgan, and we raised a series of vintage funds. So what we basically said is the normal fund has a three, four-year investment window um, and is active for 10 years. We're just going to raise a fund that'll deploy in 2005. We'll raise a fund for 2006. Mm-hmm. And we'll reserve half the fund for follow-on. And so to some degree, I felt like with each vintage fund, I was making a one-year commitment because we were funding a basket of companies during the year. And afterwards, all I would have to do is follow on in those companies. That wasn't a, necessarily, a, a that, that wouldn't be a 10-year type tailed commitment. And you raise capital primarily from kind of your network of people, non-institutional, I imagine? High net, uh, yeah, 
we did that for three years. So we raised our 2005 fund in 2004, and that was all family offices, friends, high net worths. I was the largest individual limited partner in that fund. Did it again in 06, did it again in 07. 07, we had our first institutional investor join us. Uh, Chris Duvos, he was at TIFF at the time, yep. You know, was our first sort of legit institutional investor. And then in 2007, we went out to raise our first institutional fund. So we've had Chris on the show and uh, he's always a great guest. I think we've ever had him twice now. Could you tell me how that came to be? Because I imagine... I mentioned he expected there to be some changes as you kind of went from managing your own capital or some friends and family every year to what is maybe expected in like a more institutional environment. Yeah, I think, you know, we got introduced, I got introduced to to Chris by a mutual friend. And uh, I remember our breakfast, we had breakfast at the Marriott Hotel in Conshohocken, in Pennsylvania. And we were finishing each other's sentences, talking about the structural gap in the industry, mm. talking about how venture funds were moving later, and they were just abandoning the playing field at the early stage. And there wasn't a sufficient enough angel ecosystem to fund these companies. And sort of the rise of the micro VCs was the bet that, that both of us were making, the rise of early stage investing. It just became one of those things that we were in violent agreement, and and so it, it. I think it, you know, we were a non-traditional investment for him, but just uh, in that we didn't look like any of the other venture funds that he or Tiff had backed. But I think we both had a shared perspective. Right. My my understanding is that the first round platform, and it would be great to just get your quick overview on exactly how you think about that and what that is, but been my understanding that it was basically built into the firm from the very beginning. And so I'm curious when you kind of conceived of that and how you thought about that as, as part of the firm then and, and, and maybe now. So I'd say it, it, it kind of grew organically. So okay. it, it started off saying that, you know, I was an operator and I realized that some of the best feedback I got wasn't from my investors, but was from fellow founders. So one of the first things we did is we set up a Yahoo groups for CEOs. Like right. it was just a it was just a Yahoo group mailing list and it quickly became pretty active. And I remember I think that like where this really tipped for me there were two things that tipped. The first was TechCrunch had uh, Disrupt which was their early conference. It's now called TechCrunch 50 or or whatever yeah. but the TechCrunch conference but it was Disrupt. The first year of Disrupt um, we had funded a company Mint and Aaron Patzer was the CEO. And they went on stage, and it was in October or November, and they had a goal of trying to get 20, they were launching at Disrupt, and they wanted to get 25,000 signups by the end of the year. Uh, so in the fourth quarter. They launched on Disrupt, they ended up winning the best of show. And I think they had 22,000 signups within 12 hours, and their site crashed. Their site crashed. So Aaron called my partner, Rob Hayes, who was the point partner on Mint, and said, hey, do you know how to scale MySQL? And Rob's like, yeah, no. And I think it was like a Friday night. And then, you know, Rob called me, he goes, you know, like, and so Rob and I were dialing our networks to say, do mm-hmm. we know anyone? At the same time, Aaron posted in our CEO group, help, like, you know, our site's crashing. And, you know, ultimately he ended up getting connected, you know, multiple people connected him to experts, someone who had done right. some early work, I think at Facebook back when they had MySQL, 
another person connected him to Martin Mikos. And it turns out he just needed to like flush some cash and the site would be back up. And so that sort of showed that like all value should not be delivered by the partners. You know, you could get massive amount of value if you could unlock this community. So that was just like a thread that helped us sort of pull to the point where, you know, it's really core to what we do. I mean, venture by itself, we like to fund network effect driven businesses, right? Companies that are scalable with network effects that are that are software, not services. But if you look at the types of firms that most venture venture capitalists have built, they are anti-network effect, right? You sort of, you know, t- the typical model is if I'm a VC and I point on five companies, um, I can I can help each company one day a week. If you add five more nodes to the network, if I'm now point ten, I can help them every other one day every other week, right? So the value mm. decreases with everyone you add. Yet if you if you tried to approach venture as a network effect based business. What, what that enables you to do is with each company you add, you're actually adding resource to the network, right? So when I ran half.com, when, when I talk to an e-commerce company today about customer acquisition, they're talking about social, mobile, or paid search often as their top three sources of customer acquisition. The only thing all three of those have in common is that none of them existed when I ran half.com. There was no social, there was no mobile, there was no paid search. So you know, my ability to help a founder today often is driven by what I've heard from other founders or seen for other companies do. So why should I be in the loop? Mm. You know, if, if you're building a mobile app and you want to figure out how do I get featured in the app store as the Apple app of the day, maybe you could call me and maybe I know the, the, the person at Apple, but wouldn't you want to speak to the mobile marketing manager of Square, Uber, Hotel, Tonight, who had already done that themselves? And isn't that a far more effective way to unlock the knowledge? So it's grown from a Yahoo group of CEOs to an online network where we have, you know, full-time software engineers working for us. And our goal is, you know, we connect to the slacks of all of our companies and thousands of, of employees at First Round are connected on this First Round network we've built. Yeah, it's been, it's been amazing to watch. What were some of the maybe learnings or changes as you went from managing you and your, your kind of friends capital to more institutional capital. Like, I imagine there were some new learnings around portfolio construction and thinking about, you know, multi-year funds rather than single-year funds. I'm curious, one, if you now view yourself as like a institutional VC rather than an angel, and, you know, maybe what were some of the big learnings along the way? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that you know, again, we grew pretty organically. I never said I want to be a, a money manager and what's the right. best asset class. Sort of this grew from a, hey, this is, I, I think the first 18 to 24 months of a startup's life are a magical time. So much gets baked. The product, the hunt for market fit, the culture, the team, pricing, distribution, go to market, all of that. So selfishly, I think we built a firm that just sort of allowed us to play in the, the you know, yeah. in, 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 the, in the sandbox we wanted to play in. In terms of institutionalizing, yes, we have 30 people, we have three offices, we brought on lots of other partners, and you know we have a, a mature and stable institutional group of limited partners. And so, you know, do we spend time doing models as to what works and what doesn't work? Sure, but I think it's really important to also understand that you know a model is a guideline. We're we're not afraid to break our model. We're not afraid to invest in new areas. We're not afraid to do things differently than we had done them before. And sort of experimentation and reinvention, we've tried to sort of build that into the cultural DNA of the firm. 
So as the market has evolved, it's a lot more competitive today. Maybe when you started, there was one seed firm and now there's many hundreds. Maybe there was one VC platform. Now there's maybe dozens or more. How do you kind of think about competing in today's environment as it's gotten much more competitive and what parts of the firm, you know, have you maybe evolved or what parts of the firm are you maybe thinking about evolving in the future? Yeah, I think, A, it's obviously a lot harder. I mean, you know, I think holistically, if you previously, if you'd wanted to index seed investment, you know, I would have bought in general sort of just like the asset class. Uh, as an asset class bet, I would have bought a call from 2005 to 2015. And as an asset class bet today, from 2015 on, I'd probably buy a put. Mm. Just in terms of the number of players, the valuation uptick, uh, the competitive nature. So I think the only reason I'm still here is that I'm arrogant enough to believe that I'd outperform the market. Maybe yep. that's true. Maybe that's not. You know, I, I think that there are a few things that's, that, that come to mind. The first is that the more players come in, the, the more commoditized capital gets. Ironically, the more important brand is. Brand that has to stand for something, right? So to some degree, the incumbency benefit of having been privileged to be able to work with so many amazing founders just sort of really helps. And, and especially if you're playing the network effect-based game, the community game, the strength of a community is really a draw. I think that because we've been doing this long enough, we've also been able to build a differentiated product, whether that's through the community network or services that we offer, whether it's our pitch assist service or whether the way that we choose to invest, right? Sort of because we're a large fund and we've been doing this for a while, we are able to invest. I believe we spend more on platform community service than almost any other seed stage fund makes in total fees. And that's just because we have the advantages. So we've chosen to invest heavily our fees into building a platform and building a team that we believe can help our companies win that most smaller funds can't afford to deploy. Yeah. The other thing we've been able to do is think through sort of what are, what's important to founders. Okay, it's important to founders that they have a venture firm that follows on, if their seed, that their seed firm follows on. So you know, we came out with a guarantee. If we lead your seed round, we will take 100% of our pro rata in your next outside led round. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and we think that's a differentiated product, right? If you have a choice of a venture fund who's willing to now commit to invest price unknown, lead unknown, you know, that they believe in you enough that they'll, you know, blind commit the second check, we think that's differentiated. How have you kind of grown the partnership over time? You know, I, early on, we, we added uh, Chris Freilich. He, Chris was my first executive hire at Half.com. And then shortly, very quickly afterwards, Rob Hayes. That was the core partnership for several years. You know, over, over the years, we've then added Finn Barnes as an investing partner, Bill Trenchard, who I, I had hired his, his web development company when he was in college, when he was at Cornell. Oh, wow. And, and so I've known Bill for most of his life. And then most recently, Haley and Todd joined us as venture partners. We've, we've kind of taken the approach that our preference is to bring in partners through a venture partner role, which truly is a partner role. They're investing, they're writing checks, they're taking board seats. It's just kind of a venture, it's a partner role with a two-year sort of mutual audition, right? Uh, the, the goal would be, hey, you know, Haley, you, ran a, you were a founder of Birchbox. You, you like operating. Maybe you'll like VC, maybe you won't. 
Um, you shouldn't have to make a 10 plus year commitment yeah. now and we shouldn't either. And it was an opportunity for us to, to sort of mutually sort of see, is this a fit? But we don't differentiate like our venture partners or the partner meetings. They're writing checks, they're leading deals. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Todd joined us in January, has already led two investments. Hmm. I think Chris recently retired or is thinking about new things from first round. And I think the same is true for, for Rob, potentially. Is that right? Neither is retired. They've shifted okay. from investing partner to board partner. So what they're Sorry. doing is they're, they're, they're actively managing their existing portfolio of dozens of companies yeah. and just not taking point on new investments. So you know, yeah. if, if there are new opportunities that come their way, you know, perhaps one of our newer partners might take point. Got it. I'm curious what you think is in store for you in the years to come. Um, having done first round now for, let me do the math, 17 years, is that right? 15, uh, 16. 16 years. Do you think of this as the forever job? I mean, you mentioned those words. Yes, this is. It is, okay. I've built a firm and I've been fortunate enough to work with people, you know, to, to attract teammates and partners who I just have genuine respect and affection for and, and sort of had the ability to sort of create my own job and I love what I do. You know, and I'm able to scratch the operator itch because I still view first round as a startup. We continue to to experiment and invent, whether it's trying to create first round review and you know, all of a sudden now we're a publisher or mm-hmm. or other things. You know, we're, we're we're playing around with different models all the time. You know, we, we at, you know, whether it's our dorm room fund or our angel track program to help people become better angel investors, we feel like we have the ability to sort of invent uh, as well as execute. And we get, we're, we're privileged. We just get to work with so many amazing founders. Any advice for younger VCs earlier in their career and journey? I'm curious what the, maybe the advice you give for new partners at first. Yeah. You know, I think that it's important to recognize how the, the role that luck plays. And it's also the important to recognize the number of at-bats you need, you need in this business, right? I learned so much from the 40 angel investments I made out of my personal investing that drove a lot of the, that, that saved a lot of LP money when, uh, by the time I started mm. first round. So, you know, I, I think it's important to sort of think through, like, if you're, if you're going to become a VC, think through the cadence that you get to operate at, the number of investments you make, the ability to get learning from those. And it's important to recognize there's a difference between like a model and a rule. And, and while it's important to build frameworks and models and lenses for thinking of things, oftentimes the best outliers come when you're willing to break those. I assume you'll be in Pennsylvania forever. That's also a forever, <laughs> that's also a forever decision. You know, I, I have an apartment in San Francisco and I'm out there. I, okay. Yeah. Back when the world was open, I was out there, you know, once a month. Uh, and I look forward to, to resuming that soon. Thank you so much, Josh. I, I, I really appreciate it. And I think folks uh, that listen to Origins will too. Thanks for having me. Take care. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Carta for being our title sponsor. I'm sure you're familiar with Carta. Carta changed the way private companies manage their cap tables and 409A valuations. Companies and venture firms like Robinhood, Flexport, and USV use Carta to manage billions of dollars in equity. Carta also offers fund administration services for investors now. We use Carta at Notation and recommend it to all our companies. Save time running your back office with Carta. Get 10% off at carta.com slash notation. Terms and conditions apply.
We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.